I don't know you yet, I haven't met you, my name is Zach, I'm one of our pastors here at the church. I know that many of you are uh, maybe been coming here for about a month and you're used to seeing that video play and then James standing up here. You're not used to seeing me stand up here at this point. Um, but every now and then, I'll, I'll be up here and preach with us as well and so uh, that's what's going to happen here this morning as we finish out our series. One quick thing I want to tell you about as we jump in, uh, my job on our team is to uh, I serve as our adults pastor and so uh, part of that for me means I oversee all of our groups here at Crosspoint. And so what I want to let you know of is this afternoon at 2 o'clock is our last group connect uh, for the fall. And uh, all that means is this, all of the procrastinators in the room, you are more than welcome to come and join us at 2 p.m. today in the Kids Theater. We'd love to help you join a group. If you haven't taken that step, come and be a part of today. Um, group Connect is pretty simple. It's about helping you learn about groups at Crosspoint and then helping you find a group that's going to work for you. And so if you want to be a part of that, just join us this afternoon. There's a packet in the seat back in front of you as well. You can take that and learn a little bit about what we'll be doing there today. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them with me to John chapter uh, 13. John chapter 13 is where we're going to spend our time together. And uh, today in our time, we're actually going to be finishing a series that we started uh, about six weeks ago. Over the past six weeks and then today to be the seventh, we've taken in our Welcome to Cross Point series, we have taken one of our conviction statements as a church every single week and just kind of broken them out. And our conviction statements as a church, these are really those seven kind of key things that we hope define us as a church family. Now, I want to put my cards on the table on the front end and be very honest with you that the conviction statement that we're going to work through in our time together today is probably going to be one of those that is incredibly challenging for many of us. And that's not a bad thing. I believe that's a good thing. I'm hoping that today through what we're going to see through the scriptures, that many of us are challenged in a deep and impactful way. The, the conviction statement we're going to work through is, is really countercultural to so much of our world today. And let's read it together and I think you'll understand why. Here's the conviction we're going to talk through. Our conviction is service, not status, determines greatness. And here's the explanation of that. We believe our God is a God of humility. And the evidence is seen most clearly in Jesus who came to our world not to be served but to serve. He emptied himself, died an obedient death to buy us back to God. Therefore, we will be a people of humble service. We will think of ourselves as Christ thought of himself, putting the needs of others before our own. We will not seek greatness through self-promotion or exaltation, but we will instead measure greatness by humility and self-sacrifice. Um, some of you may be crazy enough to do this. Have you ever known someone that's been training to run a marathon or some kind of long race of some sort? For the life of me, uh, all of my years, I still can't figure out why anyone would choose to run that much in one particular sitting, but there are crazy people that do just that. And so, but if you know of anybody who's done that, or maybe you've ran a 5K, 10K, whatever it is, uh, you know that if you are uh, training to run like that, you spend a lot of time preparing to run the race, right? Uh, what, what does a marathon runner do? A marathon runner, number one, they run. They do bit by bit. They grow those miles out over time. They run. They eat healthy. They get up. They're, they're training their bodies in such a way that prepares them for the race that they're setting out to run, right? I think we kind of get that. What a marathon runner does not do is when training to run a marathon, what they don't do is they don't go home and binge watch Netflix for 72 hours until they feel sick to their stomach, uh, get the uh, carton of ice cream out and start shoveling it through their uh, throat and then uh, sit on the couch for weeks on end and just get up one morning and, and just hope that maybe they've conditioned themselves in the right way. 
No, they probably wouldn't even make it half a mile. Those, that's not how we condition ourselves to run, right? But I want to I present to you this idea today that many of us, like uh, someone who trains poorly for a marathon, we have been conditioned poorly to live our conviction out as a church. And here's what I mean by this. I believe if you and I are going to live this conviction statement out that we hold to as a church, there, there has to be some, uh, some reorienting in our conditioning in order to set ourselves up well. Um, I believe that you and I have spent, uh, through culture and through our own kind of lives, we've spent the majority of our time conditioning ourselves poorly for the race that, that God has for us to run. But, but I need us to understand together this morning that though we have conditioned ourselves poorly, it does not mean that we're not called to run the race. Right, though you and I have been conditioned in a world that says you should actually seek status over service, it does not give us an excuse as the people of God to just go away with the rest of the world. And so today in our time, what I want to do is a few simple, simple things. Number one, I want to look at the problem. Why are you and I people, naturally in and of ourselves, people who love status instead of service? What's the problem? Number two, I want to look at how we solve the problem. What's the solution to the problem that we face? And then number three, I want to look at the outcome. What actually happens when you and I live this conviction statement out in the right way? But first, we'll start with the problem. Here's the problem. I'm going to put it up on the screens for you. Uh, The the problem is simply this. The problem is when we think about uh, service over status determines our greatness, uh, our problem is we search for status in temporary things instead of significance in eternal things. Here's what I mean by this. The problem I think we face is that when we look for greatness, we look to the things of this world instead of things that are eternal. And, and I wanted to share right off the top that, that I think that all of us in the room would agree with this, that every person who lives on this planet today, and you and I are included of this, every single person that walks the earth is looking to live a life that makes a difference. Would you agree with that? Like, I think many of you aren't walking in here today thinking, I guess I'll just survive this whole life thing, right? All, all of us want to live a life that is meaningful. S- s- kind of phrased a different way, all of us want to live a life that is known as being great. We, we want to look back at the end of our days, however long you have left, and, and you want it to be said of you, and I want it to be said of me, that this man or this woman, they lived a great life. Like, they lived for things that matter. Their life was significant. I think all of us want that. And the Bible even has a lot to say about that. I know some of us may perk our ears up and think, wait, I mean, are we, should we care about our significance? Should we care about living a great life? I think some of us may perk our ears up at that. But the, the Bible actually has a lot to say about greatness. Jesus spoke of John the Baptist, and he said that John the Baptist was the greatest on earth, greatest man among men. Jesus also multiple times instructed his disciples on how their lives could be known as great. See, when the Bible talks about greatness, the Bible talks about greatness in a way that that speaks to significance, a type of life that has a weightiness to it, a type of life that matters for the right things. The Bible has much to say about greatness. And so the problem is not that you and I seek to live a great life. Uh, The problem is found in what we look to in order to determine our greatness, Okay, so the, the issue is not that you and I want to make a difference and live significant lives. The issue becomes that, that we look to temporary things that are on this earth in order to define what a great life is. And I want to show you a couple of ways that we do that. The first way that we look for greatness, really we look for status through temporary things, is through what I'll just call stuff. 
Stuff. There's no real better word for it. Stuff. What I mean by stuff, I mean money and possessions. Money and possessions. How many of us could agree that for for many years, and maybe you're in this season right now, that you have spent tireless amounts of effort in chasing money, in chasing possessions, in chasing material things that are of this world, because we think if we just have enough of it, then maybe then our lives will actually matter and it will be significant. How many of us fall into that trap? Right? And, and, and in our backwards way of thinking in the world, what happens is we think that people who have more money are more significant than people who have less money. Right? So if, if you're upper middle class, you're, you sure are more significant than the lower class folks. Right? Or if you're upper class, you're, you're far more superior. You must be smarter, have a better status. Like you must be a better person in the world because you have more money or you have more stuff or you have more possessions. And the backwards way of thinking about this is, is so insane because if we truly think about it, guess what's going to happen at the end of our lives with all of your money and all of your stuff? It's going to stay here, and by that point, it's probably rusted away in some kind of a junkyard somewhere. All the things that we look to for status are actually temporary when it comes to money and possessions. We live our lives chasing so hard money, possessions, toys, things, when at the end of our days, that stuff's all going to be behind and you and I are going to find ourselves in a casket. Not actually taking any of it with us. So the first way we look for status through the world's perspective is through money and possessions. Uh, The second way that we look for status in the, the temporary and in the worldly way is through position and through power. If the first way is more of a material way, money and possessions, uh, the second way is really more immaterial, uh, power and position. Has anybody ever lived in a neighborhood that has like a a really overly zealous HOA president? You ever had that? Yeah, absolutely. And no one likes them, right? And you wonder why, because it's like, man, they've given this volunteer position of authority and just went full tilt and just kind of went over everyone's head with it, right? That's what I mean when we talk about power. Think about like the worst HOA president you could imagine. That's what I mean when I talk about position and power. In this way of thinking, what happens, we think, is because of the position we hold, the title we hold, or the authority that we've been given, that means that we have a greater status than the other people around us. And this trap leaves us selfish, arrogant, prideful, hating people, not loving people, seeing others as servants of us instead of us being servants of them. The pursuit of position and power is one where many of us have banked our lives trying to build that status because we think if we can get to a certain level, maybe, just maybe, other people will actually be impressed with us. And so we chase it. And whatever way that is for you, and maybe you fall somewhere in between, all of us chase temporary things in order to give status to our lives in the world today. But, but what if, and I think you can catch along with this, what if those things didn't actually satisfy us like we thought they would? And, and what if those things, instead of leaving us full at the end of the day, actually left us kind of hollow and cold on the inside? And I think you would agree if you've done that rat race for long enough, you would say yes. I want to present to you, though, that the Bible has a much greater way of talking about greatness than pursuing the things of this world. The Bible has something that is far more significant to us to turn to if we want our lives to be known as great. Today, if you, if you have your Bibles in John 13, we're going to read a story of Jesus and the disciples. And I believe that through this story, we're going to see where Jesus shows us that greatness is found. If you have your Bibles, start in verse 1 with me. 
The story says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing now you, you, you do not understand, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And listen to this, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with Now, as we see this story with Jesus, I think many of us are probably familiar with it. Many of us have heard of the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And if you're honest enough with yourself, like, spoiler alert, you already know the conviction statement. You know our conviction is service, not status, determines greatness. And so when we establish the problem that that you and I love to seek status in temporary things instead of significance in eternal things, I bet many of us are sitting here thinking right now, okay, I get it. I I get what you're going to ask me to do. You're going to look and say, I need to be a servant, not look for status. And and you're using Jesus' example of washing the disciples' feet. And so because he did this, I need to do this as well. And I think the temptation that many of us will run to when we think about uh, course correcting is we start to look in at ourselves and think, okay, what I need to do if I'm going to be one of those good Christians is I need to simply get to work. Like, I get it. I hear you guys talking about serving. I hear you talking about this all the time. Okay, I know what you're going to tell me today. I need to get busy. But I want to caution us before we go down that road. Because if we go down that road too quickly, we're going to miss the entire point of what Jesus is doing here in John chapter 13. If you're familiar with this story in some kind of vague way, I want you to put any of your presuppositions aside for this morning and lean into what's actually going on in the story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. Um, John chapter 13, verse 1, 1 through 8 is a, very, is a very important and critical time in the ministry and life of Jesus. And here's why is right after this, Jesus is going to be betrayed, he's going to be arrested, he's going to suffer, and ultimately he is going to go to his death at the cross. And Jesus, knowing that, spends some of his final hours with his disciples, preparing them for what they need to know when he leaves. And so he's preparing his disciples, he has this moment with them, and I want you to put yourself in this story for just a minute. You're sitting there around the table with Jesus one evening with all the other disciples and all of a sudden Jesus gets up, he sets aside his outer garments and and he takes a towel and a basin with water and he stoops down and he begins to go around the table and wash the feet of every disciple at the table. I want you to think about that for a minute. Put any kind of other knowledge you have away for a second and think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the only one who is worthy of all praise and adoration and service, stoops down to his disciples and he begins to wash their feet. Stoops down to his disciples and serves them in one of the greatest ways possible. 
I want you to see something about washing feet in this day and why what Jesus was doing is so significant here. Uh, you and I, and if you have a spouse, like, you probably think your spouse has some nasty feet. Like, if you're not a feet person, you probably think you know some folks that have some nasty feet, don't you? Um, I, I know that some people hate feet, and they're like, man, everybody's feet are disgusting and keep them away from me. But, but as bad as you may think your feet are, your spouse's feet, your friend's feet, whatever it is, like, your feet may stink a little bit, but they're not disgusting like what these dudes would have been having going on in their day. And let me explain why for a minute. Uh, back in this day, uh, these guys didn't have perfectly uh, closed-toed, well-crafted, sewn-together shoes that were going to keep all the dust and dirt and all the filth away from them. They didn't have that. And so if you were going to it, let's say I invited you over to my home for a meal that afternoon, and I invited you in, and, and you took a journey to come and, and get to my home, what was going to happen is by the time you've arrived at your destination, your feet would have been disgusting. Everything that you picked up along the way, and some of you want to throw up for a minute, but everything you've picked up along the way are, are, are on your feet, in between the toes. It's just filthy. Now, what would have happened in this day, because that is true, it would have been customary for whoever's home you were coming to, so let's say my home for a moment. When you got to my home, I would have provided some way for your feet to be washed. And there was really one of two ways that that was going to happen. Uh, number one, I would have just had a water, uh, had some water in a basin with a towel, and you would have washed your own feet. And number two, though, and this is where I want you to lean in and see this, number two, the other way you would have had your feet washed when you come over as my guest was during this time, if I was affluent enough to have it, if I had a Gentile servant within my home, that Gentile servant would be the one washing the feet of the guest. But I want you to notice that I said a Gentile servant would be washing the feet of the guest, not a Jewish servant. It would have been customary not to even let a Jewish person uh, stoop to serve someone in such a disgusting way. Like if I didn't have a, a, a Gentile servant in the home, you're, you're on your own and you're washing your own feet. Because a Gentile servant in this day was the lowest of lows. Like there was no role that was going to be lower than that. And so understanding that, that the, the very person's job that it would have been to wash your feet was either yourself or the Gentile servant within the home, guess who begins to stoop down in our story and wash the disciples' feet? Jesus. And what is he doing when he does this? He is taking on the role of the lowest of lows. He is taking on the position, the greatest act of servanthood, that the disciples could ever imagine. And it's here in this moment, in this act of humility, that Jesus is going to show us the very foundation for you and I to become a people who look at service instead of status to become our greatness. And I want to show you what I mean by that. Here's the solution to the problem that we all face. The solution is this. The solution is we must be served by Christ. Solution to the problem that we face is you and I as people, we must be served by Christ. If we are ever going to see ourselves change from people who look for their status in temporary things instead of our uh, greatness in eternal things, the, the way that it starts, the foundation to see that be true, starts by you and I as a people being served by Christ. So let me show you this from Peter's story in John chapter 13. Jesus goes around the table and he comes to Peter and you have to love Peter because he always talks and he gets to Peter and he says, and Peter is resistant to the grace that Jesus wants to give him. 
And some of you who, like me, are resistant to grace, need to pay attention to how Peter responds. Peter responds as Jesus comes around the table and he says, "Uh, why are you going to do this? He's kind of taken aback and confused by what's going on. And Jesus tells him, he says, Peter, um, you're not going to understand what's happening right now, but eventually you will. And so Jesus comes to Peter and Peter looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And I love what Jesus says back to him. He says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me. If I don't wash you, you have no part of me. What does Jesus mean when he says, if I don't wash you, you have no part of me? I need you to see this, that when Jesus was stooping down to wash his disciples' feet, he was doing something far more than just a simple act of service, though it was that. Though Jesus really was stooping down to physically wash their feet, there is something greater going on around the table that evening. And what Jesus is doing as he stoops down to wash their feet, he is foreshadowing something glorious that is about to come. He's foreshadowing the next day when he would actually go to the cross and he would uh, die for their sins in their place to bring them back to God, making them truly clean forever. When Jesus is washing their feet, what he's doing is he's foreshadowing the spiritual reality that Christ has done for all of us. And so Jesus tells Peter, look, brother, unless you are served by me, you actually don't have any part with me. Unless you receive the grace that I am going to give you, you have no part. Why is that significant? Why must we be served by Christ if we're going to see our lives actually count and matter for the right things? Well, number one, I want to present to you that the only way you and I can get away from being self-centered, self-focused people is by having a heart transformation. Here's what I mean. No one ever had to teach you to be selfish. No one ever had to teach you to look for status in your own um, kind of temporary lifestyle here on this earth. We have done that of our own volition. But Jesus comes into the story and says, actually, if you want to be made new, you need to be served by me. If you want to be made new, it's not something that you need to do for me. It's something I have done for you. If you want to receive transformation, if if you want to be someone who can get away from being self-focused and be others-focused, there is a foundational starting place, and that is your wicked heart needs to be transformed. You need a new heart that only I can give you. And so Jesus shows that to them, that their hearts need to be transformed The other reason why you and I need to be served by Christ if we're going to become people who are known for service is because being rooted in Christ is the only godly motivation for serving others. The only godly motivation for serving others is to be rooted in Christ and in a place where we we are serving because we have been recipients of the grace of God within our own lives. Any other motivation for service that we have, if it is not rooted in Christ, makes us nothing more than people who are passionate about humanitarian aid. And I know that sounds a little strong because humanitarian aid is not wrong in and of itself. But too many of us for far too long have gotten exhausted when we think about serving. And the reason why we're exhausted when we think about serving is because our hearts are not anchored to the gospel of Jesus. Our hearts are anchored in our own strength and our own sufficiency. And so what we do is we start to serve and we think, why is there no joy within me? 
And it's because we're not rooted in him. The only godly motivation for you and I to serve like Christ is to be anchored with him. It's why in John chapter 15, Jesus has this amazing teaching, and I want you to go read it this week. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, listen, church, for many of us, we can do a whole lot of stuff apart from Christ. We can serve, we can give, we can do all that the world says we should do apart from him and and make a lot of ground, but it never have any sort of eternal significance to it. And it's because the only proper motivation is to be rooted in Christ. All right, so let's say now we are rooted in Christ, we have been served by him. What is the next step for you and I to become the servants that Jesus calls us to be? Uh, Let's pick back up our story in John chapter 13, verse 12. The story goes on to say, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus, after serving the disciples in the greatest way imaginable, after foreshadowing the cross that was to come, Jesus now goes on to what is the next logical conclusion for a heart that has been transformed by his grace. Let me show you what I mean. The next solution for us to become the servants that God calls us to be is we simply serve like Christ. We serve like Christ. If the first solution was to be served by Christ, now you and I are free to serve like Christ. Um, let, me, let me give you an analogy to show why this is true. Um, if, if you are someone who is married in the room or in a very significant relationship right now, maybe dating, engaged, something like that, think back to that moment that you, met, you, you first met that man or that woman. So when I think about me, I think about my wife, right? So uh, my wife, when, when she was here just a minute ago, I thought about it all kind of fresh and again. Uh, I thought about, you know, think back to that very first kind of few months of you dating your spouse or dating your significant other right now. Like, no one ever had to tell you to go and talk a whole bunch about the other person, did they? You were just really good at that. Like, you would tell anybody who would listen to you about this amazing person that you've fallen in love with. So I remember back with my wife, I, like, I called the whole phone book. I guess who I found. Guess who loves me. I found a one. I'm not actually going to be like this. I, she actually wants to date me. Oh, my goodness. I've tricked her. Like, like you do that because you've fallen in love with her. So you just want to tell everyone about what you found. I found this amazing person that I love so much, and, and you couldn't help it. So I'm calling friends. I'm calling family. You're telling the people at the grocery store, right? When you got married, you're always flashing your ring a little bit to say, oh, yeah, look at me. I got married. Uh, that, that is natural for us. And why do we do that? I don't know. Think about it for a minute. What is the physical reason why we do that? I have no idea. But I can tell you this, that there is something so moving within your heart that you can't help but shut up about that person. There's some kind of emotion that has been um, kind of uh, exploding within you that you can't physically explain it, but, but you know, man, I love that person so much and, and, and you just can't help but tell other people. Friends, I want to present that it is in the same way, in fact, greater 
that our service for Christ comes flowing out of us. When your heart has been so radically transformed by the grace of God and you get it, like it's not just some kind of cheap grace, like in your heart of hearts down, in your bones, you know that you have been served by Christ, that though you don't deserve it, he has radically changed your story forever, bringing you back to God. When you understand the gospel, you cannot help but shut up about it. Right? Like you don't have to get a kick in the pants to get to serving. It's like, oh my goodness, how could I not tell people about this goodness? How can I not become a person who serves? Because I, I understand what Jesus has done for me. You will not be able to shut up about it. And I want you to see a little bit as we think about what it means to be servants. I want you to notice in the story in John chapter 13 what Jesus says about the distinction of Christian service. I want you to think of what Jesus said about uh, the distinction of Christian service. He says, um, for, for I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. If, if I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash who? One another's feet. See, usually when we think about service, we think about service outside the church and not inside the church. You know what I mean by that? Usually when we think about what it means to serve, we think that, that we mean that we need to go outside the walls of the church to serve instead of taking care of our brothers and sisters in Christ right here. But Jesus says... The greatest distinction to godly Christian service is actually towards one another. Jesus says that if we are going to become servants, it it first means that we serve one another. That our first and primary concern is for those of the household of faith. And so, brother and sister, I want to ask you, is your life categorized by service? Would people look at your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ and look at how you love them and how you sacrifice for them and how you serve them, would they look at that and say, yes, that is someone whose life has been transformed by the grace of God? Would people look at us like that? Can I be honest with you for a moment? This past couple of weeks, the Lord has been hounding my heart, maybe in conjunction with getting ready to preach this. But, but God has just been gripping me with some fears for our church, for us. And I want to share a couple of them with you. No, number one, my greatest fear for us as a church is that we lack devotion to one another. And here's what I mean by this. When people see our love and devotion towards one another, is there actually anything distinct about what they're seeing? Or are they seeing a group of people who gather together and more tolerate each other than they do to serve one another. Like, is there anything that we would look at our love for one another and say, yep, that is supernatural in nature? Because my fear is that for far too many of us, and myself included in this, we are not devoted to one another, but instead we've just kind of settled in to say, I'll see them at church on Sunday, maybe I'll go to a group, and then I've got the rest of my life to do whatever I want. But Jesus says that our love for one another should overflow, that we serve one another in a way that is deeply devoted to each other. And so my fear is, number one, do we lack devotion Number two, my fear is, do we consume more than we contribute? Do we consume more than we contribute? Let me tell you my greatest hope for us. Maybe not the number one greatest, but it's up there, maybe top five greatest. 
My hope for us as a church is that we would have more people willing to stand in the heat or rain or whatever cold elements are outside and park cars than we would people who yell at the people parking cars. And, and it's, it's comical in a sense, but it's sadly true. Like my hope for us is that we would have so many people willing to say, I'll take the lowest job that nobody really wants because I, not because I need to feel bad, but because I love my brothers and sisters in Christ so much that I want to do this for them. That is my greatest hope for us. My hope is that we would have far more people serving than we would have need. And so I want you to think with me, are we becoming those very people? I want to show you another verse in John chapter 13 as we get ready to wind down our time. And I want to now look at the question of what becomes of our service to one another. Because here's the deal. Many of you may say, Zach, why should we be more concerned about service to each other than people out in the world? Why why does that matter? Is there anything that actually comes of our service towards one another? Look at John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35 with me. Jesus is teaching here. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, hear this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You want me to show you the outcome of what happens when you and I understand that we are called to serve sacrificially for one another? The outcome is simply this. The outcome is the hope of the gospel is put on display. When you and I learn to serve one another sacrificially, the hope of the gospel is put on display. Jesus is saying here that when the church learns to serve one another in a way that's devoted to him, in a way that's devoted to one another, and in a way that is sacrificial, there is something that is actually produced through that service. He says in some kind of way that I don't fully understand that the the world around us is actually going to notice that we are his disciples. They're going to see our love for each other and they're going to say, man, there must be something supernatural about these people. Like, surely God on high has done something in their midst to make them the people that they are. Does that describe who we are? The book of Acts blows my mind when I think about the early church. Think about the early church with me. There was these stories where people in the church had need And because a brother or sister in Christ had need, people started selling their possessions in order to meet the needs of the person who had the need. Can you imagine that if I had a need and you were like, hey, Zach, I'm going to go sell my TV to help you meet that need because I know you need it more than I do. But that shouldn't surprise us that the world would see the hope of the gospel because in a world where selfishness is applauded, in a world where arrogance is championed, to see a group of people who are actually known for humility and service should look a little bit distinct. I want to show you again from one other verse, and this is where we'll close. Matthew chapter 5. I want to see you the greatest hope together in what Jesus says when you and I start to live this out. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Jesus teaches this. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying here, well, actually, let's do this. Let's, let's think about something with me for a minute. Let's say by some weird scenario, like you were born in this room, right? 
That sounds a little weird. Like you were born in this physical room, right? So you grew up here, literally lived here your whole life. All right, and let's say that we could shut all the doors right now and turn all the lights off, and there was no light at all that had made its way into this room. There is utter darkness, so dark you can't see the hand in front of your face. Now, let's say however old you are, whether you're young or old or somewhere in between, You've lived your whole life in here and you've known nothing but utter darkness your entire existence. And then all of a sudden, one day, I put a lamp right here and I light it. And you see something beautiful and you see something glorious that you have never seen your entire life. What are you going to do? You are drawn to that light. In fact, you're probably going to run. And Jesus says, when you and I as the church learn how to be people of service and not status, that like a lamp in a dark world, people are going to see our good works and give glory to God in heaven. Like God would actually use us in our sacrificial love for one another to draw people to his family. Like there would be something so supernatural about our love that, that, that people would see it and say, there must be something that is going on in your midst and, and I need to know about this because this is not normal. That's the type of love that we're to have. As we close, I want to end, we're going to end in, on three different little notes here. One and two are simple. Number three will be a collective experience. Number one, I want to give a very practical next step for you if you're here today and you say, man, I, I, all right, I am rooted in Christ. I know Jesus, man. He has changed my life. I'm ready to, to get off the sidelines. I'm ready to contribute and be a part of serving the family like he's calling me to. Some of you need to just put excuses behind you and just start to serve your brothers and sisters in Christ. There really is no other way around it for you. Your motivation is right. Your heart is there. You need to get off the sidelines and get in. Number two, I want to challenge many of you, and this is going to be a little bit different, but it'll make sense. I want to challenge many of you to connect to a group. I want to challenge you to connect to a group because right now you're not serving anyone because you're not actually spending life with anyone. You can't serve them because you're never with them. You rub shoulders maybe for an hour on Sundays and then you're back to your life excluded somewhere else. Unless there is meaningful community in your life, you may not ever actually serve the body of Jesus. So you need to begin to share your life with others. It's time to put the excuses away and jump wholeheartedly into that. And then number three, the way we're going to end our time is we're actually going to end our time by taking communion together. It's on this very same night that Jesus actually instituted the Lord's Supper with his disciples for the very first time. And uh, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to remind ourselves of the gospel of Jesus together. We're going to remind ourselves of the good news that we've been served by Christ. So I want to invite our host team to come forward. And what's going to happen here, let me, let me say this off the top. They're about to pass some things out to us. If you're here today and you're a guest or you're not taking communion or if you're not a Christian, we believe this is a, something that Jesus reserves for his people. If you're here, just take that bucket and pass it on by you. Um, some of you, this is going to absolutely freak you out because this is brand new for us. Uh, communion is going to look a little bit different today. You guys can go ahead and start passing those buckets. What I want you to do is I want you to take, there's a little cup with a, a packet it's all kind of one thing. There's a packet there in the, uh, in the bucket. Take one and don't do anything with it. Just hold on to it for just a second. We're going to let everybody do this together. And today as we take communion together, we're going to do it this way because this is going to allow us to do it as brothers and sisters, a family together. And we're going to collectively in just a moment remind ourselves as a church family of the good news of Jesus Christ laying down his life and shedding his blood for us.